All right, and we are live, ladies and gentlemen. Climate czar John Kerry recently discussed the importance of China's cooperation in the fight against climate change. Kerry is not wrong, but how far is the U.S. willing to go in order to keep China happy? Also, rumors are swirling that China is building a super dam near the border of India, potentially igniting a geopolitical fire between the two countries. Also, what role is BlackRock, the corporate face of climate action, playing in China when it comes to energy production and finance? We're going to be talking about this and more on episode 413 of the In the Tank podcast. Welcome to the show. As always, I'm your host, Donald Kendall. Joining me today, I've got a full crew. I've got Jim Lakely, VP of the Heartland Institute. Jim, I heard you were recently kicked out of school for having a Gadsden flag on your backpack. What's going on? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a shame. And yeah, apparently uh, that's uh, one of the buzzy news items of this week is that a kid uh, got kicked out of class for having a Gadsden flag on his backpack. And uh, to his credit and to his parents' credit, uh, he stood up to that but they ha of course they bizarrely said that the Gaston flag the don't tread on me flag which flies proudly above the heartland institute building in northern illinois uh somehow stands for slavery and the slave trade so uh apparently they don't teach history in public schools anymore and they need a 12 year old to get it right well they can't even read because they directly treaded on him so even worse a... even worse it was not a non-public school it was a charter school it was, it was a, a charter school it was a classic school classical and, school and that is the voice of chris talgo editorial director here at the heartland institute how are you doing today good sir doing good donnie and uh just you know really really hoping that we uh, get an extended summer this year you know it's uh we're almost in september i love my summer i love my hot weather so i really hope we get a uh uh, you know, another couple months here. Well, if you're part of the Writers Union or Actors Guild, you are getting an extended summer because that strike is continuing. Also, Linnea Lucan, research fellow with the Arthur B. Robinson Center on Climate and Environmental Policy here at the Heartland Institute. You survived the hurricane. How is it going out there in whatever yes. state you're in? Uh, I am in coastal South Carolina. Oh, I didn't um, want to dox you. Go ahead. Yeah, that's okay. It passed right <laughs> over my house, but it was a total snore <laughs> this time. Oh, um, right. I have a bunch of like small twigs down in my yard full of leaves. I'm going to have to rake and stuff. But other than that, thankfully uh, we were saved from this one. Right. So that you can appear on today's podcast. That is the most important thing. Before we get into any of the topics, though, I do have to put that message out there to audio-only listeners that are catching this show on a Friday or later, most likely, that you can join us a day earlier live, where we are live streaming on YouTube and Rumble and Twitter and Facebook, or should I call it X? I don't know. And you can join the conversation, throw your comments and questions in the chat. Maybe we'll show your comments on the screen. Maybe we'll address your questions on the fly. If you are an audio-only listener, leaving a review for us on iTunes would be greatly appreciated. If you are not and you are watching us, hit that subscribe button, share this content, leave a comment under the video. 
uh, and whatever else that you could do that won't cost you a penny, only will cost you a couple of seconds, but it will greatly help out the show by breaking through those big tech algorithms to prevent content like this from being shown to more people. Also, last little bit of housekeeping before we get to our topics. Next week, Friday, is our benefit dinner, September 8th, at the Chicago O'Hare Marriott Hotel, featuring John Stossel, Jeannie Ives. We are all going to be there. We look forward to seeing some of you in person. Uh, Don't be shy. Feel free to come up to us, talk to us. I'll be uh, greatly flattered by that. The plan is to still do the show live on Thursday next week. So if you are wondering if this event is going to disrupt your schedule of listening to this show, don't worry, it won't. At least I'll be there. I don't know if anyone else is going to be busy. Jim, anything you want to say about the benefit dinner before we get to our topics? No, it's going to be a fantastic night. It's always you know the highlight of the year. It's a, it's a lot of fun. It's always very inspiring. John Stossel is a fantastic uh, featured speaker. He's worked with Heartland on a lot of projects over the years. Um, it's just so great to have him back. We he he actually uh, has spoken. He spoke to our at our benefit dinner. I think back in 1994. So it's been a while, <laughs> but. Uh, it's going to be great to hear. Him. Yeah, that's right. I don't know how old you were, Donnie. I'm probably four. <laughs> I don't know. Four or but, five. Uh, yeah, four or five. Yeah. So, uh, no, it's going to be great. It's still not too late to get tickets. You can go to benefit.heartland.org uh, for more information and to get tickets. And we do hope to see uh, a lot of our viewers and listeners there. All right. Fantastic. So before we get to our main topic, which is, uh, which is a handful of stories that all relate to China and climate change, and then at the end of the episode, I've got my second edition of Davos Watch that you want to make sure to stay tuned for. But before we get to any of that, uh, we need to talk about this story that I heard about late last week. Uh, you may have heard about at least an element of this story that the newer Kia and Hyundai cars are like supposedly easy to steal. Criminals have discovered that they can steal these cars relatively easy due to the lack of an anti-theft device called an immobilizer. I won't get into the specifics on how to steal these cars, or maybe Chris will get some bad ideas, but apparently this has become a thing over the past couple of years. The problem is particularly bad in cities where car thefts are going through the roof. But anyways, on Friday, I was driving home from work and listening to the radio, and I heard a news segment talking about a reporter asking Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson about the surge in vehicle thefts in the city. And I was absolutely floored by his response. This is what he said. He said, the failure of Kia and Hyundai to install basic auto theft prevention technology in these models is sheer negligence and as a result a citywide and nationwide crime spree around automobile theft has been unfolding right before our eyes see according to mayor johnson the perpetrators of these crimes were just possessed into committing these crimes and i understand that because just the other day i was walking past my neighbor's house and i saw their door was open and i couldn't help myself but steal their tv So I thought the quote was so absurd, I literally Googled it and screenshotted it and sent it to Chris, suggesting that he write about it uh, at the first red light that I I stopped at. And Chris, you did write about it in an article published right now at Red State. So what are your thoughts on this? I I know that you're really rooting for for Mayor Brandon Johnson. So. Big fan of Brandon Johnson, obviously. Uh, well, so first of all, uh, the easiest way to make sure that your car isn't stolen is to have a manual transmission, which is what I have, because I am <laughs> willing, I'm willing to bet that 99.9% of these thieves have no idea how to drive a manual transmission. So that's my first thing. But um, yeah, so Brandon Johnson, you know, we've had 
14,000 car thefts in 2021. We hit, we surpassed the 20,000 mark in 2022. And this year we've already surpassed 20,000. That's carjackings and auto thefts combined. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it, it's terrible. It's happening in the middle of the day. It's being live streamed on social media. Um, and, you know, instead of, instead of addressing the root cause of the problem, which I, you know, kind of try to elaborate on like later in the piece, Brandon Johnson just takes the easy way out and he just tries to say, oh, it's the car manufacturer's fault. Their cars are too easy to steal. And anyone with any ounce of common sense knows that that is just complete and utter BS. Because really what's going on here in Chicago, and this is happening in uh, big cities across the nation, New York, you know, L.A., just all over the place, is uh, you're having young, um, you know, young people uh, engage in the auto thefts. And then uh, what usually happens is the cars are brought back to uh, gangs and the gangs are using them to commit other crimes. Mm. So instead of really just addressing the fact that, hey, you know, Brendan Johnson, I wish he would have said, hey, these young, these young, you know, boys, for the most part, we're talking 11, 12, 13, 14, you know, many, many cases, they are being used by the gangs to go and, you know, commit these crimes so that the cars can be used for other crimes. Brendan Johnson just takes, you know, the easy way out and says, oh, it's the car manufacturer's fault. When really, I think that the root cause of this is our epidemic of fatherlessness that's happening in these in these cities. And you know, I looked at I looked at some statistics, and eighty two percent of uh, you know black mothers are had out of wedlock children uh, in twenty twenty one in the city of Chicago, and that is just you know that's that's you know a, a terrible terrible uh, thing. And what what happens is, and you know, this is you know. The evidence shows that when, uh, you know, young men are growing up in a uh, household without a father, they're going to be much more likely to engage in reckless behavior. They're going to be much more likely to try to seek that, you know, parental role figure in a in a gang. And they're going to be much more likely to go to prison. So I wish that Brandon Johnson would have actually addressed that part of the issue, which I understand is not a, you know, there's no easy solution to that. But I wish that he would have at least, you know, commented upon that. And I wish that he would have said, you know, that he's a role model. Brandon Johnson's been married to the same woman since 1998 and he has three kids. And he's actually like, from everything that I can tell and everything that I've read, a very devoted father and, you know, takes, you know, a a big role in his children's lives. And I wish that he would have, you know, talked about that. You know, President Obama kind of did the same thing when he first came into office with his like big brothers program and all that. And then it just kind of fell by the wayside. And I think, and I, you know, I know that that's a controversial issue. I know it's probably not the easiest thing for these people to talk about, but I wish that they would at least address that, you know, part of the equation here. Yeah. Let me just correct one thing that you said. Um, Erase everything. It was just Kia's fault. Jim, you thought this was a parody when you first saw the story. I really did. I saw a headline on that on Twitter and I thought that's, this is Babylon B or something. This isn't real. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I, I can't believe it. I mean, this, to kind of echo something that Chris said, like, this just seems like, you know, we can we can look at ourselves, you know, like, we could look at the district attorneys that have broadcasted they have no interest in pursuing punishment for certain crimes. We could look at public policy. We could look at just the general mismanagement of cities. That's all too complicated. Let's just blame Kia. Like, that just seems to be the easy political answer, doesn't it? Well, blaming the car manufacturers for the fact that their vehicles are stolen at a higher rate than others. I mean, the first thing I thought of was, was uh, well, first of all, that's victim blaming. But it's like, you know, you really shouldn't have been walking in that part of town at that time of night with that short of skirt. 
you know, it's uh, what are you going to do? You should be uh, dressing differently if you don't want to be a victim of, uh, of crime. Uh, if you would say that to a woman, you would be run out of uh, maybe not even in Chicago, but you probably your political career would be over. Um, and rightly so. Um, but th- th- it's like I said, I thought this was a joke. I really did. I mean, yes, car thefts. And I mean, we talked about it on the pod yes, uh, last week about how um, in reflective of the GOP debate that the our, our cities are becoming unlivable um, hellscapes. I know Andy lives there and you know, I'm sure that his pocket of, of good place to live is getting smaller and smaller around him. And you'll come out here to the suburbs eventually, Andy, believe me, when you get old enough. But uh yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, Andy's, the one, Andy's the one stealing cars. I don't know if yeah, you know he, the, he, the same Andy as I do. Go ahead. He is, he is of the demographic, <laughs> and he is pretty he is pretty handy and smart, so he'd probably get away with it. But, um, you know, I've lived in urban environments. Remember, every, Anyone remember the club? Remember the club? You would put it on your steering wheel, and then you wouldn't be able to turn, and it was a theft device. I had one of those. You know, we used to live in a society where people were responsible for protecting their own um, property in ways that they can um, by getting something like the club. Um, but we, it's, I think it's really, it's kind of a jokey sign of societal breakdown that the mayor of one of the, the greatest cities in America, his answer to solve the problem of rampant car theft and, and crime all over the city is to sue the manufacturers for making their cars too easy to steal. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, like I said, I, I keep what you can't parody that. Like I said, I thought this was a parody story, but it's actually legit. And yeah. that just shows how far our cities have fallen. It's really, really sad. Yeah, Linnea, take this logic from Mayor Brandon Johnson and apply it to like other things. Like I know that there's been an epidemic of retail theft across the country. Stores are closing and moving out of certain areas. Huge amounts of money lost to the retail theft in recent years. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I know they're like massive numbers and getting bigger uh, every year. But, uh, you know, by his logic, it's the store's fault for having items just sitting there on the shelves like that. Those <laughs> items are just asking to be stolen. What do you right. think about this story? Well, it I mean, like Jim said, it is victim blaming. But this kind of thought process isn't it's not new. This has been something that people on the progressive or Marxist, you know, kind of far left have thought for a long time. I recently read um, uh, Chesterton's Orthodoxy, and he brings up a point that to a progressive, and I might be butchering, I'm not trying to direct quote or anything, but but to a progressive, it's the environment that forms the person, period. There is nothing more than that. And he kind of funnily makes the point, you know, to a, to a progressive, if an environment is set up in a way that makes it so that crime is easier to do, people will do more crime. Morality doesn't even enter into it. Mm. And he makes the point that uh, boiling oil is also an environment. (laughs) And so so maybe uh, (laughs) that might be part of the reason why some of the punishments from uh, kind of communists of old are so extreme. Sure. Yeah, well, I, I, you know, I, I, I sort of disagree with that because I think that they have created an environment where it's, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to steal. And even when they do steal, you know, Kim Fox is not going to prosecute them. So I do think that there are certain environmental factors that are at play here. But I also think that, you know, once again, it just comes back to the family and the fact that, you know, over the past 60 years, the, the rate of, you know, two family households is just dropping, you know, like a stone. And it's not just happening in the black population, it's happening in the Hispanic population. And it's also happening in the white population, not to the same degree, 
But, you know, as we've seen, you know, most of the perpetrators of these, you know, tend to be Hispanic and black, you know, youths. Yeah, it's a it's a a wild, a wild statement. Like I said, I'm not I'm not often surprised by statements coming from Chicago politicians. But this one, I was literally driving home. and I was just like, I what? Like, that can't be. And I looked it up. Sure enough, it was true. But uh, we should be embarrassed by this as Chicago land area residents. Andy, you should be particularly embarrassed by this. Um, it also and- it also could be a, a money grab for the city. You know, the city's in dire financial straits. So this could also, <laughs> it, it, you know, th- there's an element of that as well, I think. Absolutely. All right, let's get to our main topics here. So like I said, primary topic revolves around a handful of interesting stories that involve China. China. Uh, but together, they illustrate a very important picture about climate change, the geopolitical implications of climate change, and the climate change industry itself. So let's take a look at these stories one by one. So first, just recently, John Kerry did an interview with NPR, uh, where he talked about, uh, among a few other climate change-related topics, he talked about the importance of China's cooperation in the fight against climate change. I think we have a clip of this interview. Let's go ahead and let's go ahead and play that uh, Carry NPR clip. You recently uh, went to China to resume conversations on climate that had hit a snag. Uh, I don't know if you got a chance to watch the Republican presidential debate a couple of days ago, but. Former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley was one of the few candidates who seemed to actually take climate change seriously. She said it is real. It's a serious concern. But her answer was something we've heard a lot before from from Republican contenders of what the U.S. does doesn't really matter unless China and India are doing the same thing. You're talking about phasing out coal-fired power plants. Uh, I just saw a report that said China is still permitting two new coal-fired plants a week. How do you get China on the same page when it comes to coal? Well... It is absolutely essential that China uh, sign up and, and, and undertake major changes to their coal policy. And it is accurate that uh, we can't get where we need to go. No one in the world can if other countries aren't also doing this. But it is not accurate to say we can't do anything or shouldn't do anything because someone else isn't. Now, in, in, in the case of China, They've got to change that coal policy, and hopefully they will, because it's in their interest. And they'll do it not because we're saying they have to do it. That's not going to work. They'll do it because they understand that that's their contribution to the rest of the world as well as to their own citizens. Yeah, so there's a couple of things that I want to kind of add, uh, contextual things that I want to add to this before I get your reactions to John Kerry's latest statements. One is that it's not that we can't do anything about climate change unless somebody else does it too. It's the fact that our actions would essentially be meaningless unless China does something too. So I just looked up like this morning, maybe it was last night, the latest global CO2 emissions numbers. And it shows that the United States accounts for 14% of global emissions. And that's on a downward trend. China, on the other hand, 29%. That's more than double the United States alone. And China and Indian combined, uh, China and India combined, represent more than one third of global carbon emissions. So, yeah, it's not that we can't do anything uh, unless they do something. It's the fact that it was just like we would be hurting our own economy for no global benefit if you you know follow their line of logic and all of that. 
And the other thing is, Kerry talks about how China suspended any climate talks with the United States uh, uh, or that we just resumed talks with them. Um, I, I had to recall this. I had to look it up. I totally forgot about this. But just, but China suspended any climate talks with the United States for a year after Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan. That was the thing. We're, we're not talking about you with climate change because Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan. And it just kind of reveals how serious they are about climate change. If they're really going to shun talks with us for a year because of Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. So uh, let's go to Linnea first. What do you what do you think about John Kerry and, and his statements about China's role in fighting back climate change and all of that? So a lot of what John Kerry and many of these representatives who go to China all the time, uh, a lot of what their perspective on this is, is based on how they're treated when they go to China. And so what happens to John Kerry when he goes to China to talk to their leaders about climate change is they take him into a nice room, they have a nice dinner, and they say, oh yeah, good good John Kerry. Yes, of course, you should buy tons of solar panels from us. Right. Oh, that's such a good idea. You should buy tons of batteries from us. That is such a good idea. Coal? We should we should stop using coal? Well, maybe you could ship some of your coal to us and we'll take it off your hands and uh, we'll talk about coal another time. That's what happens to John Kerry when he goes to China. And they assert over and over that it's very important to them that we see that we do action on climate change. And they pat him on the head and send him on his way. And then they turn around and they commission a thousand new coal plants. And they, they consume more coal than almost the entire world. Actually, more coal than basically every other country combined. Wow. Um, I am extremely skeptical of the emissions data that comes out of China. I, I do not think that it is accurate. I think that we need to question China's reporting on this kind of thing. Yeah, look at this chart from our world in data. Wow. Yeah, that looks like a country that's really worried about carbon dioxide emissions. Um, I, it is mind blowing to me that anyone takes John Kerry or the Chinese government seriously on this issue. Hey, Donnie, can you go back to that chart for one second? I just want to point one thing out. Okay, so if you look at the year 2000, that's when it really starts to take that uh, upward trajectory. Gee, it just occurred to me that that's the same year that China was allowed to enter the World Trade Organization. And all these, you know, U.S. politicians, you know, namely Bill Clinton, came in into office thinking, well, if we can just get China to liberalize and just be, uh, allow them to become part of the global economy, then they'll be, become our friends and then they'll like do all this great stuff. Actually, it's been a complete and utter backfire because look at what's happened is since 2000 when China, you know, was allowed to start to really engage in global commerce. Their, their carbon consumption uh, emissions have gone through the roof. Mm hmm. Well, yeah. and, and I want to point well, the out the United too, States has played a role in this. Is that's what all I'm saying is that they've been aiding yeah. and abetting this. I, it's my position that carbon dioxide emissions are not that big of a deal. And also, um, I'm not overly worried mm -hmm. with anyone using coal. I'm just using this as an example. You know, they say that coal is, you know, some terrible uh, thing that has a disproportionate impact on climate change and blah, blah, blah. Um, but they don't care when China goes and does it. And yeah. it's not it's not a hypocrisy thing, though, I don't think it sounds like a hypocrisy thing. But what it is, is they are I don't think that John Kerry is a true believer in the climate issue. 
Well, of course he's well, not. But 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 it's just it's interesting to note that you know in in the late '90s slash early 2000s, when a lot of our offshoring of you know our factory production was was to China. Gee, what happened to, to their you know carbon footprint? It went through the roof. So yeah. you know, really, what we've done is we've said we don't want to produce those kind of things here. We want to produce them over there, and then they are the ones who are producing all the you know, carbon dioxide emissions, and they're doing it much dirtier than we would be doing it here at home. Much, much dirtier. Right. Which is yeah. why, which is why I, I'm, I am really holding out hope that we are going to eventually decouple from China and say, guys, you now you're on your own. Good luck with all that. We're not going to buy, you know, plastic trinkets from you anymore. Yeah. Linnea said that she's not against coal. I am. I've been against coal for, uh, since I was about seven years old, where I, three years in a row, I got nothing but coal in my stocking <laughs> for Christmas. So I was I've hoping that's that. where you're going with that. <laughs> uh, Jim, <laughs> Jim, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's funny because like in the same interview earlier in the interview, they asked John Kerry about like the Biden administration's position on all of this, where were they supposedly say that we're all full bore going into a transition to green energy Yet he's green lighting the Willow project with oil production, whatever that is, or something like that. And they're like, isn't that kind of, uh, you know, hypocritical? And, and John Kerry's answer to that, we should have had the clip for this, too. John Kerry's answer to that was like, oh, no, no, it's not hypocritical. We're definitely committed to uh, uh, transitioning to full renewable energy. But we have to make sure the lights stay on. We have to make sure our economy keeps running and all of that. And I was just like, what? Are you admitting that we can't run the economy on, on green energy? Haven't you been telling us that that what's what we're going to be able to do for the past like 20 years? That was mind blowing to me. Yeah. Well, I, I have the transcript up right here. And he says he's asked about, uh, quote, quote unquote, huge new oil drilling projects like Willow. And he says, no, I don't believe so. I don't believe it undercuts. I mean, it may undercut in some people's minds, but does it in reality? No. And the reason is that, that we are full square into this transition. But at the same time, we have to keep our economy moving and you have to be able to supply the demand that American citizens and others around the world are exercising in order to be able to go to work and get to the hospital and do the things that we do daily uh, to live. But the key here is to stay on the curve, stay on that downward trend that gets us to the goal. Um, yeah, I mean, but but the Willow, you know, an oil drilling project is not um, that doesn't that doesn't power power plants. Right. That's not so the, the two things are disconnected. and It doesn't make any sense to, to think about it that way. The, the danger here, and we've talked about this a ton on this podcast, especially when the great Linnea Lucan is with us with her expertise in that in that field, is that you cannot power a modern economy on wind and solar power or by all, all these so-called renewable and green energy uh, solutions to get us off of coal and natural gas. Uh, is not enough. It does not generate enough power. Every wind farm that that contributes to the grid has to have a gas powered, usually a natural gas powered power plant as backup to make sure that the grid um, remains stable. Same thing with with solar panels um, for the most part. So it's it's um, it, so it's it, it's nice to see him admit that um, you know we got to make sure that people can go to hospitals and that the lights are on and that the, the the machines that go beep 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 and keep you alive are actually still running because there's enough power to get to them um, because you know that's obviously necessary but you know a, a dark part of my mind believes that they want the the grid to collapse because they want um, American economic collapse as some sort of cosmic comeuppance for the fact that we have been the world's leading economy and country for the last most of the last 200 years um you know but the thing about with with china that that made me laugh is that um see you maybe look up the willow soundbite now i can't find the china one here 
but uh, we played it in the clip. Yeah, where, where he says that why China is going to give up coal. To the NPR reporter's credit, at, at all things considered, he did mention that China is building two new coal plants a week. We are building no two a week. Um, we are building no new coal plants. We are shutting down coal plants at a very accelerated rate. Um, but he, but John Kerry, I don't know if he, if he's naive or he thinks we're all stupid and don't know and don't have common sense, because he is convinced, or at least says publicly, that China will give up coal for its own interest. They will not do it because we're saying they have to do it. That's not going to work. They'll do it because they understand that it's their contribution to the rest of the world as well as to their own citizens. Wow. So, so saving the planet, if we have to save the planet, it essentially comes down to China doing it for, for, the, for all of our good. China has a fantastic record of doing things <laughs> for the good of humanity, don't right, they? I mean, right. I think they do that every day. You <laughs> can just ask any Uyghur that you can find, and they're all together. They're easy to find. They're all together in concentration <laughs> camps. You can ask them. Uh, how how China is acting uh, on behalf of humanity because of out of the goodness of their heart and to save the world. So again, I don't know whether John Kerry is is stupid or he thinks we're stupid or he's just naive. Um, but um, I, I actually think John Kerry knows that China is never going to go along with this. Like I said, if you're building two coal plants a week right now, while we're going to be going to net zero in the next uh, you know 15, 20 years, that so it is a valid argument. To say that none of this, none of the, the the pain and the sacrifice that the West, but especially the United States, are on track to do, is going to help the, save the planet if that has to happen. And even if we did, even if China reduced its CO two e emissions, it would not change the weather one bit one hundred years from now. CO two is not some kind of magic global thermostat that controls what how warm or how cold it is on this planet. It does not, carbon dioxide is not, is not the substance that creates hurricanes or droughts or floods. It is, the, the whole thing is so unscientific and, and it's so unscientific. You have to think, why are they doing this in the first place? It's so they can control economies, control energy production so they can control people. That's what this has always been about. That's what, what it's going to be about now and in the future. Yeah. There was a clip I saw on, um, I don't know, YouTube or something like that. It's one of those like reels or shorts, whatever they call them. And it was a clip of Elon Musk in an interview. It could have been on Joe Rogan. Maybe it was on some other thing or whatever. But he was talking about like how, you know, China got all these experts in uh, a handful of years ago and, and showed, you know, the leader of the Communist Party the truth about climate change. And, and from that point on, they just put the pedal to the metal when it came to producing renewable energy. And it was just like, yes, okay, there has been a growth in renewable energy in, in China, but it's not because of some fear about climate change, at least from what I can tell, especially when you consider the two coal plants that they're putting, uh, they're, that they're turning on every week for the past like year and a half. Um, it, it's just, it's more about just breaking its back to generate as much cheap energy as possible as much energy as possible, not even cheap energy, because they want to make sure they have as much energy as possible to keep their country going. And more importantly, their industries going with as much affordable energy as possible. So yes, they have increased wind and solar. If you look up uh, like China power generation, energy generation, you'll see a chart that shows that that little piece of the, the pie is also is growing 
actually the piece of the pie isn't growing. It's basically staying the same, but ev the whole pie is growing. They're expanding everything. They're expanding coal. They're expanding gas. They're expanding nuclear. They're expanding hydropower. Right. And one of the, and one of the largest projects that they've taken on in the past 30 years or so was the construction of the Three Gorges Dam, which is the world's largest power station in terms of installed capacity, 22 gigawatts of power. The dam is so big, in 2005, NASA calculated that the water displacement from this dam slowed the rotation of the Earth by 0 0.06 microseconds. It's a very, like, impossible to actually notice amount, but still, that's how big this dam was. And now, based on satellite imagery, it appears as though Chinese government is secretly beginning to work on a new dam, a super dam with a planned capacity of 60 gigawatts. This is three times bigger than the Three Gorges Dam. And China is keeping the project largely under wraps because it's being built near the border of India, where it could potentially disrupt the water flow coming down into India. And any resulting environmental harms caused by the massive project would be felt by Bangladesh and Tibet and India. And this could potentially add to some geopolitical tension between the two countries. So I thought this story alone was interesting, but it just kind of shows you how big of a business energy production is and the impacts that it could have on the geopolitical stage. And it just kind of shows you that like China is in, in the, uh, in the business of just producing as much energy as possible, regardless of what the source is. Linnea, what, what are your thoughts on that or anything else we've been talking about so far? Sure. And I made this comment last time I was on in the tank and I, and I ended up writing an op-ed about it. Uh, but when you think about it, wind and solar are right up China's alley. They are, they are that perfect, disposable, fast, short-lived <laughs> garbage. <laughs> <laughs> that's breaking left and right and causing worse problems in the land in like filling up landfills and stuff. And uh, it's, it's just perfect. It's right up their alley. Um, I also think that China is going to do, as you said, what is best that they think is best for their economy. They are not concerned with some global progressive liberal liberalization of democracy everywhere. They are not interested in any of that. They are not interested in global cooperation unless it is a format that suits them. And right now it's suiting them pretty well because basically what it is, is China becomes everyone's um, builder for everything that matters. So, you know, everything that our technology depends on comes through them. Even if they're not the ones directly manufacturing it, we buy it through them. So they've got everyone on the planet pretty much um, wrapped up. And I know Chris is particularly concerned about this kind of stuff with uh, China controlling basically all of our manufacturing, all especially when it comes to... Um, our military technology. Why is one of our main geopolitical enemies in charge of building all the computer chips that go into all of our jets and stuff? I don't know. It doesn't seem like a very good idea, but we're not building them here. So, um, but yeah, no. And it and it's the same thing when it comes to our energy sources. Why on earth would we depend on China for all of our batteries, all of our solar panels, the photovoltaic cells and mm -hmm. stuff? Very few of them are made in the United States. Our government has made kind of a tepid attempt to address it and have and have passed a few um, small rules about it. I mean, 
I don't, I don't think that they've really leaned into it yet because they're afraid of uh, costs going up if we have to make it somewhere other than China, especially when it comes to wind and solar, because the reason, part of the reason other than the subsidies why wind and solar are so cheap is because most of it comes through them um, a lot more cheaply than we would be making it right now in the States. So I don't know. I, I, yeah. I hope that we can, as Chris said, decouple from them. Uh, but it's going to be painful if we do it with any kind of speed. Hey, Andy, keep that thing going. I see you clicking buttons. Leave it going. I, I like that graphic. I'm waiting for it to shoot up at any minute now. But uh, uh, for those audio-only listeners, Andy's got a, a chart that's showing the growth of uh, emissions by country over time. But Chris, we were talking about this a little bit yesterday, this like secret construction of this dam. And, it, and it's interesting because the Three Gorges Dam that they've got going on, like I said, world's largest power generating station on the planet. Uh, I guess I'm being redundant there, but whatever. Um, it comes with a lot of controversy because the water displacement of that and when the water levels get too high, China's gone through a period of a, a, a lot of floods recently and they have to divert that water. Um, before it does any damage to the dam into other areas. And sometimes they make it not go into certain public areas, uh, like, you know, the capital Shanghai or something along those lines or Beijing, and they put it somewhere else. And they totally flood certain areas of their country that are, you know, homes to thousands of people. And like this one, this one's going to be even more controversial because of the downstream affecting other countries potentially. And it's like I said, it seems like, and what Linnea said, it seems like they don't care about anyone else. They don't even care about necessarily their own people. They just care about the bigger picture when it comes to their country and making sure that their industries have as much power generation as possible. Any repercussion, repercussions be damned. What do you think? I agree. Uh, you know, China's... Coming up on their 100th anniversary of the founding of the Communist Party, 2049, and they are on a mission. And this has all been laid out by Xi Jinping for, you know, for years now of becoming the world's number one superpower by 2049. And they are doing whatever it takes, you know, what, what it, whether that's the, you know, building of these, you know, giant dams and whether or not that has an impact on their own people or their neighbors, they don't care. They are on a mission. They want to become, you know, the world's, uh, you know, only superpower. And they, you know, are going to do whatever it takes to get that. Um, but, Donnie, just real quick, want to go back to one thing you you were talking about earlier, how China is ramping up their renewable energy production. I think that they're actually doing it a lot smarter than we are because they're doing it as a complement, not as a replacement. Mm -hmm. And that, that's what that's what the United States should. I, I mean, if. If we're going to do it, that's how we should do it. Sure. It, sh it should not be a replacement because there's not enough baseload energy, as Lene and Jim have stated a thousand times on this podcast, to provide what we need to power our homes, to, you know, to, to make sure that we have air conditioning in the summer and, you know, uh, you know, the, the heating, you know, potential in the winter on the renewable energy, uh, you know, infrastructure that's available right now. So, I mean, I have no problem if that, you know, if some states want to go and, you know, do this, but to do it as a compliment, not as a replacement. Yeah. Yeah. Wild stuff. Jim, I, when I heard about this story of them building this dam, that's three times larger than the biggest dam currently on the planet in secret on the border of India. I was like, that is such a China thing to do. Oh, do yeah. you have any, do you have any thoughts about this? 
Well, I think about the poor fish, right? Don't they think about the fish that are migrating? I mean, we're not able to build a hydroelectric dam in this country anymore. And we shut them down because like a little fish and they, even though you build steps so they can get up. Uh, no, that, does, that causes too much environmental damage. But we don't do anything smart anymore. I mean, the, the United States is not capable of building a, a, any, any project, any public works project like a Hoover Dam or something like this. Um, you know, with environmental regulations and with with uh, ideology, extremist environmentalist ideology, basically running all government policy, we'd never be able to do something like this. Um, but Chris is right. We we are committing economic suicide and we are actually making sure, well, put it this way, China's goal, as Chris said, is to be the number one economic and cultural superpower in the world to basically replace the United States. The United States could do something about that. It could continue to be a great country. It could continue to be the world's uh, superpower. Um, but we are, with the, with, you can see it in the words of somebody like John Kerry uh, and the policies of a president like Joe Biden, we are ceding our number one status. We, are, um, we will not be defeated. We will have given up. We will have surrendered the game. Uh, so China is definitely going to be number one by 2049. I have no doubt about that because they are willing to do what it takes to become an economic and soon to be cultural and political superpower. Um, and we haven't really thought through, I don't think, what are the global ramifications of China being the most powerful nation on earth? You know, you know, generations and Europeans, um, you know, they may just, you know, bitch a little bit here and there, really out of jealousy about the fact that the United States after World War II became, um, you know, a hegemon, the world's global superpower. And they're annoyed, oh gosh, you have to give us all those Hollywood movies and um, all of your culture is the most important. You guys think you run the world. And it's mostly just kind of uh, kind of bitching about it. But America didn't use its, you know, for the most part, didn't use its, its power to dominate the entire world. Um, we created something called the United Nations. That doesn't happen without the United States. Um, and in fact, we let China become one of the most um, influential and powerful members of the United Nations. And they leverage that to get to where they're going right now, which is to be number one. But I don't think we've really thought through what world the world will be like when a cruel, oppressive, communist regime is the world's number one power. We haven't thought through that at all. So for all of the flaws of the United States, um, us being number one has not made everybody else um, subjugated to our will. Uh, I don't know if it's going to be that way when China's number one. Yeah, I, that uh, you you pointed out something at the beginning that I wanted to point out as well. That uh, you know when people talk up the amount of renewable energy that that China is putting online, the vast majority of that slice of the pie is hydroelectric. You know, the uh, little elements of it are wind and solar, but the vast majority of what's considered renewable energy is hydroelectric. Which, like the leftist environmentalists in the United States, as Jim mentioned, don't want that. <laughs> they don't want that. You know, if, if we were to say, "Oh yeah, we could we can offline all fossil fuels. We just have to build a few more dams," they'd say no, because nope. like like Jim says, some fish or whatever is going to be threatened yeah. by it. So, so and yeah, they don't want nuclear either. They don't want nuclear. They don't want coal. They don't want gas. They don't want hydroelectric. Um, right. They want us to, to to power the the world's greatest economy on. Uh, unicorns and, dreams. and wishes and hopes and dreams. <laughs> and that's not possible. But that's it, Jim. They know it's not possible. We've gotten to the point in that in that now age old pattern with progressives in this country of um, it's not happening. And now we're at it's happening and it's good that it's happening. And that right. is that the degrowth agenda 
the degrowth agenda that they are talking about on TV now, publicly, they talk, they have it in their Twitter bios, they say degrowth proponent or whatever, they have shifted from talking about how wind and solar, if we get the technology good enough, can take the place of all of these other fuels. And they are now talking about how, well, they can't so long as our economy still needs that much energy. So the goal is to reduce how much energy the economy needs, which means that you need to start decreasing the economy's um, power um, or how, how, how much, I don't know, energy we're able to have for ourselves on demand, that kind of thing. They're saying, no, mm -hmm. the point is we need to decrease the demand for energy. Right, and that yeah. is what the line is now. And the craziest part is that kind of happens naturally as a country gets wealthier anyway. And once we get our stuff more efficient and and handling itself, uh, kind of running its own thing, especially with, you know, when we had all that clean coal power before natural gas started supplanting it, um, which natural gas has fewer emissions anyway. So it was kind of a either side that you're worried about it, it was a win-win, but of course they're not happy with that because they want to leave it in the ground because the ultimate goal is not to stop the weather. The ultimate goal is to crush the economy and to crush the people. I think that, I think it's very clear that the point, and we've seen this with COVID, we've seen this with the climate emergency, whatever, the same like solution is applied to every single supposed problem. And it becomes clear that the solution is the aim, not solving the problem. Yeah. That I always, doesn't really make sense. But, if you were to write that out, it would sound really stupid, but you get what I mean. But here's the good news. And Donnie, I know you always accuse me of being Mr. Pessimist. Now I'm going to be Mr. Optimist. Are you ready for this? You are okay. the heart of the podcast. Go ahead. Okay. Well, so here we go. Uh, in 2016, when Donald Trump was elected president, in, in the blink of an eye, we became energy dominant. So... I, I'm 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 hopeful that the next administration is going to come in and say this is all just utter nonsense and go back to just common sense policies because America has more natural resources under our you know under our feet to power us for you know decades and decades if not centuries and centuries. So centuries I and centuries. I just hope and hope and hope that this is you know gonna you know be a a blip in uh, you know in the historical record here for America. Yeah, the, the one other thing that I wanted to say that Linnea reminded me of is um, I always thought it was funny in like the Green New Deal where, you know, part of the Green New Deal was about 100% renewable by X date, right? But then also the other parts of the Green New Deal were retrofitting homes so that they're more energy efficient and doing all this stuff to save energy and all of that. And it's just like if all of our energy is coming from renewable energy, then why does it matter to conserve it? It was almost like an admission that, uh, you know, we can't do the same level of, of, of power in the country if we're relying on green energy. So people didn't really talk about that too much, but I always thought that was funny. All right. So the last China centric story that I want to talk about on this podcast before we get to my Davos watch segment was brought to my attention by Chris. So earlier this month, U.S. Representative Mike Gallagher from Wisconsin launched an investigation into BlackRock and 
MSCI, which uh, among other things they do, they are an ESG rating company that we've discussed on this podcast before, and their Chinese investment decisions. According to evidence uncovered by the Select Committee on the CCP, BlackRock and MSCI enabled their investments of Americans' savings into dozens of blacklisted Chinese companies that have ties to the Chinese military, including at least one nationally owned oil company. So know that while BlackRock is working to undermine fossil fuel companies here in the United States, they are also profiting off of investments in nationally owned fossil fuel companies in China. So this is the corporate face of climate change showing you the that uh, nice and clearly that the only green that they care about is the color of money. Chris, what are your thoughts on this? You, you brought this to my attention. I know you were looking into it a little bit harder than I was. Kind of blew me away, but what are your thoughts? Yeah, I wrote an op-ed, and it's up on Town Hall about this. And the op-ed is titled, uh, BlackRock is using Americans' retirement funds to invest in the, Chinese, in the Chinese Communist Party's military. Because that's what is happening. And this report showed that uh, so far, BlackRock has... At, spent at the very least $429 million of Americans' uh, retirement funds and in investing it in Chinese uh, uh, military companies who are, are, are using that for uh, manufacture of uh, weapons, of you know, nuclear technologies, of you know, shells, of everything you can think of. So I, I'm much more concerned about the military aspect of this. And uh, what, what uh, they found out was uh, the... Biden administration uh, issued an executive order on August 9th saying that from this day forward, uh, certain uh, industries, you know, certain companies, certain, uh, you know, sectors are going to be off limits for um, investing. And, you know, basically it was they didn't mention China specifically, but it was, you know, basically written between the lines. And uh, the problem with that is, and Mike Gallagher pointed this out in his, you know, great letter to BlackRock, which I read in full, is that 17 percent. Is that, that only applies to um, active investments, which makes up only 17% of BlackRock's portfolio. 83% of BlackRock's portfolio is passive investments like ETFs and mutual funds. So the executive order has no teeth and it doesn't it doesn't apply to 83% of the amount of you know money. We're talking $9 trillion total in assets under management under BlackRock alone. And BlackRock is not the only company doing this. And, you know, it's... It's, you know, we're talking about how the United States is, you know, is, is, is you know, helping China, you know, uh, take, you know, take over our position as the world's number one power. This is just, I think, the worst case of it, because this is an American company using Americans retirement funds unwittingly against their knowledge to invest in military, uh, you know, companies that the CCP, you know, controls. And one other quick thing. In, in China, they have what's called civil, civil military fusion, which means that every single company in China, whether it's ByteDance, the owner of TikTok or any company whatsoever, they have an obligation to use that data and to use, you know, whatever they can to help the military. So it doesn't even matter if it's not if the investments from BlackRock or Vanguard or whomever are going into military companies, as uh, as you know Gallagher pointed out in the letter, because in China, every single company is controlled by the CCP and every single company in China, whether it has nothing to do with the military or not, is going to be used for military purposes. So this is a, this is, you know, just just such a, you know, sad state of affairs 
And once again, I, I hope that this leads to a decoupling of China, because I think that the time has come. I think that for two decades, you know, China has, uh, you know, used and abused us. They've taken advantage of, you know, the quote, free trade, which is anything but free trade with all the intellectual property theft and right. cloning our, you know, cloning our F-18, you know, jet and everything. So it's, I mean, it's just so yeah. sad that BlackRock and Larry Fink are more concerned about making a buck in China than about actually, you know, defending the interests of the country that, you know, they live in. Well, I thought the uh, I thought Mike uh, uh, Representative Gallagher's press conference, the most impactful part of it was when he smashed a watermelon with a giant mallet at the end of it to prove his point. <laughs> but uh, but uh, <laughs> that was his dad. That was his dad, Gallagher. <laughs> OK, got it. Got it. I got him confused. I think Lene is too young for that one. Jim. <laughs> <laughs> Gallagher. Oh, thank you thank you everyone uh jim you know it, it's just so funny legend. larry larry fink you know the head of blackrock goes to davos and all of this and and preaches the importance of esg and this stakeholder capitalism model and it's all about saving the planet and all of that and it's just like all right that sounds great in america but yet you're just doing like what you say is the opposite in china like it, it's just the I would say the hypocrisy is mind blowing, but I'm so like numb to it by now that it's just kind of par for the course. I guess the mind blowing aspect of it is that nobody else cares about this. What do you think? The Chinese Communist Party, I'm sure when they get in together, their meetings sometimes just look, you know, look at each other and got, and say, guys, can you believe our luck? <laughs> can you believe this? That the West is giving us everything we need to succeed. We don't have to do anything. We can just steal their technology and they won't do anything about it. Um, that we, we can have them shut all their factories down and have them over here and have slaves do it because they're going to save them a few bucks um, to ship it back across there. And it'll also cause more CO2, but who cares about that? They don't care about that. You know, basically everything that the Chinese Communist Party is, un is undertaking right now to become the world's global superpower, we have given them. We have made this happen. We've paid for it. <laughs> it's, it's unreal when you think about it. And they must be thinking, I cannot believe our luck. If I was an old Soviet apparatchik or member of the Duma or or something, I would have been like, you know, God, all we had to do maybe was hold out another uh, uh, another couple of years, and maybe yes. the United States would have made us uh, propped us up and made us the world superpower instead uh, instead of China. But China's the one who got to uh, who, who is now propped up, and I, and I think the intellectual property stealing is um, really should be emphasized even more. I mean, most people's most people's first exposure to uh, China dealing intellectual property is taking a walk through Times Square and seeing Chinese knockoffs of uh, of, mo of American movies and stuff that are sitting out there uh, uh, on the on the street. And that's where I first saw it, but back in the '90s. But as um, as Chris pointed out, I mean, they basically clone our technology. Oh my gosh! And I just remembered China sent a, a spy balloon <laughs> that looked at the entire country. And at its leisure, take any any intelligence and pictures and audio that you want. We're not going to do anything. And then after you send all the information back to China, then we'll shoot it down, um, you know, uh, over over the ocean after it's done all of its work. I mean, if it was not for the United States and not just the government, but industry basically bending over for China and having them as strategic partners, uh, they would be nowhere near where they are today. They wouldn't have the economy for it. Uh, but you would think it doesn't make a lot of logical sense that we can be a, a politically communist, but economically capitalist. The only way that that contradiction in terms happens is because the capitalism part is funded by the West, but especially the United States.
Yeah, I think all of these stories together should show you the reality uh, behind the climate change action movement. It's far from the rosy, we're just trying to save the planet image that they pretend it is. In reality, it's a giant money-making scheme for some, a political football for others, and justification for societal control for others still. And I think all of these stories kind of point to different elements of that. Uh, Linnea, before I get to my Davos Watch segment, uh, let you final words of any of these topics that relate to China or maybe specifically this BlackRock one. Oh, I don't have too much. China bad. That's my <laughs> contribution. Nice. That'll be a nice little YouTube short. I've just <laughs> used the two words. Got it. Perfect. All right. Well, let's uh, let's do it. Let's do our uh, let's do our Davos Watch. Where's our bumper music? Wow, the nope. Davos elite really <laughs> don't want us to do this. We, twice, we literally twice tested row. it. This twice. is twice in a row. We tested it before we even went on. This is unbelievable. I know. I know you, Klaus Schwab. You have a direct line with YouTube, and you are messing it up. That's the only explanation for this. Unbelievable. Are we going to go without it, Andy? Show me your head and nod yes yeah, or I, no. I, I, I'm uploading it. To, I'm uploading it to our uh, the videos that are going to Double welcome, spot. welcome to the first episode of this is this is unbelievable. This is a Davos scam. I know it. There is absolute chaos going on in the back room here. Wait, Stop here the hammering. Let me give it a hammering. Let me give it one shot. Yes. All right. All right. Welcome to episode two of Davos Watch, where we keep an eye on the global elites from Davos to the UN and all the other advocates of global fascism and totalitarian technocracy. This week, our story comes from the World Economic Forum and their new report titled Green Returns, Unleashing the Power of Finance for Sustainable Food Systems. But before we get into that specific report, I have to lay out a little bit of context here, some important context. So agriculture is a topic that is often discussed by the Davos crowd. The World Economic Forum has an entire section on their website dedicated to agriculture. Back in 2022, Davos meeting uh, during a panel titled Redefining Food Systems with Emerging Technologies, Experts agonized over the reality that agriculture industry prioritized, get this, producing food. In that panel, Sven Tori Holsetter, president and CEO of Yara International, said, quote, We have a food system that is only focused on kilos produced, not environmental impact, pro uh, productivity, nutri uh, nutritional content, water consumption, carbon sequestration. That's all disregarded. These panels and numerous articles and reports on the World Economic Forum website and other like-minded organizations' websites promotes the idea of designing a more inclusive and sustainable global food system. See, the great minds over there at Davos believe that they can run the world better if they can just get their hands on the controls of society. And this is honestly a common link between uh, this topic and pretty much any other specific topic that I'll ever discuss on Davos Watch is that everything will run better if you just give them the controls. And the justification between these things is also often the same, and that is climate change. 
So climate czar John Kerry laid it out pretty bluntly a few months ago in May when at the Aim for Climate Summit hosted by the Department of Agriculture, he said that net zero energy goals were impossible to meet without addressing greenhouse gas emissions from the agricultural sector. He said the industry, which accounts for one third of the world's carbon emissions, has to be put front and center in the fight against climate change. There isn't a Davos meeting that takes place that doesn't include John Kerry as the speaker lineup. He is the most direct link you could imagine between the Davos crowd and the Biden administration. And the problem with all of this rhetoric, like I've mentioned before in past episodes of uh, Davos Watch or the past episode, is that uh, um, Davos, they're, they're massively influential. All of this rhetoric, it seeps down into the public policy of countries around the world. So so it's so influential that countries around the world are putting these policy practices into place and uh, and it's to detrimental effects. So let's briefly talk about some of these examples. The Netherlands and the Dutch farmers protest from last year resulted from draconian mandated reductions in the country's nitrogen emissions. The mandates resulted in massive unrest amongst the farmers who realized the new regulations would destroy their livelihoods, forcing many to shut down their farms or ranches completely. And let's remember that the Netherlands is the second largest exporter of agricultural goods, second only to the United States. And there's also a direct link from this uh, scenario that played out and the World Economic Forum. One of the World Economic Forum's plans was called for what they called food innovation hubs. And if you go to their website and you look up food innovation hubs, you'll see a lot of boring language about determining best practices for farming and making sure that those practices are disseminated to farmers around the world and building partnerships and sustainable development, et cetera, et cetera. But in one section, towards the bottom of their uh, of their of their page, talking about these food innovation hubs, they have a paragraph describing how these food innovation hubs are supported by a global coordinating secretariat hosted by the World Economic Forum. So, like a centralized coordinating hub, I guess you can call it. So while the World Economic Forum plans suggest it wants to support local farmers, those farmers are all networked together under this centralized hub. And guess where that center point of this global coordinating secretariat program was going to be headquartered? That's right, right there in the Netherlands. In January of 2021, 18 months before the draconian nitrogen restrictions were unleashed on the country, the government of the Netherlands and the World Economic Forum announced the formation of the Global Coordinating Secretariat in the Netherlands, and the rest is history. Sri Lanka is another example we've discussed a number of times in this podcast. Sri Lanka destroyed its economy by banning chemical fertilizers with little or no warning to the country's farmers. Crop yields collapsed and the government was forced to import crops from neighboring countries, which wreaked havoc on its already struggling economy. And coincidentally, I guess you can call it a coincidence, just a few years prior to this development, the World Economic Forum published an article written by the then president of Sri Lanka titled, quote, this is how I will make my country rich by 2025. In the article, he wrote about a bunch of things, including combating climate change and financing large-scale green energy systems. Obviously, it didn't go according to plan. This is also happening in the Western world. Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister of Canada and a former World Economic 
Forum Young Global Leader, uh, has been proposing a climate policy that seeks to cut fertilizer emissions by 30% by 2030 and 100% by 2050, despite the fact that Canadian agriculture groups warn that such a plan would decimate the crop yields of that country. The United States and the UK have also rolled out plans in recent years to essentially pay farmers to produce less food. So to circle back to this new report from the World Economic Forum titled Green Returns, Unleashing the Power of Finance for Sustainable Food Systems. In this report, the authors explain how banks and other financial firms offer money and other financial services to help farmers, farming companies, and other firms in the agricultural space uh, to transition to a more sustainable model. And they argue that that amount of money should be multiplied by 15 and obviously financed by governments around the world or maybe even international organizations like the UN or some of its uh, agencies that are kind of under that. So this is uh, the model that's advocated um, by the World Economic Forum and the Davos types. It's essentially a carrot approach to incentivize the industry to go along with their green, sustainable, inclusive agricultural system. The report outlines five tools financial institutions could use to adopt their vision of the sustainable agricultural system across the world. This includes supply chain finance, equity finance, insurance, debt, and grant and blended finance. All of this boils down to the same basics that underlie the ESG scheme. If you want access to money and financial tools, you'll play ball. The paper also outlines various tracking technologies that could be used to ensure transparency in the industry and evaluate performance. One section even discusses a supplier scorecard so that financial institutions can determine eligibility for different benefits. Data is also key to much of the World Economic Forum and Davos types plans for control, but that's a topic for a future episode of Davos Watch. But all of these things have that uh, those little strings attached to it, where if you want all of this, you basically have to allow us to spy on every element of your uh, of your business and all of that. And I would be willing to believe that this plan is really about making better agricultural sector choices and more sustainable system, whatever. If it weren't for the horrific track record of these plans and the centralized mechanisms that are required to operate these plans and uh, we, that we just went over and the centralized mechanisms that put Davos elites and their supporters squarely in front of the control panel. And like I said last time, and I'll say at the end of each one of these segments, these plans and organizations are incredibly influential and well-connected. And oftentimes the things they say and do go largely ignored, and they go ignored to our own peril. That is why I'm doing Davos Watch, and every week I intend to shine a light on some element of the global elites, and I hope you stay tuned so that you can stay informed. Linnea, thoughts about the agricultural sector when it comes to the Davos elites and... Uh, them thinking they yes. know how to do it better than the farmers that have been doing this for thousands of years and all of that. I have written extensively about this at Climate Realism. I think it's one of the most alarming things, one of the most alarming trends that we have in the West. Um, like with the 15-minute city thing, we might disagree about individual policies. You know, do you need to, um, from the top down, organize a city in this way, or will it, you know, kind of come about on its own just because it is convenient. Um, that alone is not what's dangerous. It's when all of these different policies start coming together at the same time, no one 
agricultural policy is it being proposed in a vacuum. They might do their analysis in a vacuum, but it's not being pushed in a vacuum. So let's take, for example, the issue with the Netherlands. So Netherlands, as you said, provide the vast majority of meat, for example, uh, to the rest of Europe. Mm. Um, They on their own through a voluntary program, reduce their nitrogen runoff by about 70%. And that's good. Then the government comes and they say, well, now you are being voluntold to reduce it by another (laughs) 50%. And if you don't, we're going to buy your farm from you and shut it down. Right. And you do not get to say no. Um, So they're coming in and they're shutting it down. And that's not so good. But what else are they doing? Well, they're trying to restrict uh, artificial fertilizers which would be fine, maybe, probably not, but it would be more fine if they also were supporting the cattle industry because what you need if you don't have an artificial fertilizer is an organic fertilizer, which usually comes from cattle waste, you know, the manure or bone meal or blood meal, whatever it is that you're using, but you need a lot of that. And so what are they also doing? They're also culling cattle across Europe, trying to reduce the cattle load. Well, where are you going to get your manure from now? See, it's these it's these compounding policies. And I don't understand how someone can't look at that and say, hey, wait a minute, maybe we shouldn't maybe we should focus on one area that's actively impacting. And that's what we should worry about. You know, maybe we're so worried about nitrogen. I am a little bit skeptical about this, but fine. You can worry about nitrogen, but you can't also get rid of all the cattle <laughs> if you're trying to get rid of nitrogen fertilizer. Um, it's it's absurd. Uh, and, it, and it's getting very dangerous, I think. Um, last year, there was a, or last winter, rather, there was a bit of a produce shortage in the UK. So in uh, British grocery stores, they were complaining that they didn't have vegetables and blah, blah, blah. Um, a lot of it was due to a problem with some shipping because what has Britain been doing? Britain's been paying farmers to shut their farms down to convert the land back into like basically uncared for wild property. Mm -hmm. Um, Love to see in a couple of decades when the wildfires start popping up from that. But the, the media landed on climate change because one of the major shipping routes was under some kind of a tropical storm or something, and they couldn't get their produce to the grocery stores. And they're like, oh, no. Well, maybe if you were growing some of your own stuff, you wouldn't have to ship as much. And you wouldn't be as susceptible to changes in the weather or whatever it happens to be. It's They call it sustainability, but this doesn't sound sustainable for anyone. It doesn't even sound sustainable for land, because organic farming takes like... Uh, two or three times as much land to grow the same amount of yield as uh, current, you know, large scale traditional farming that uses uh, inorganic chemical derived fertilizers, usually from fossil fuels and pesticides and all that. You can get huge yield out of that on a relatively small property. But they're asking us to go back to the kind of sustenance farming that we did while pretending like you can feed everybody with that. And the point is, you cannot feed everybody with that. You couldn't feed anyone with that then. You know, it's, yeah, it's bad.
That's yeah. my rant. Yeah, we got a a twenty dollar super chat from Christine saying, "Keeping on shining that light, Donnie. Thank you for the support there. Christine is greatly appreciated." Jim, I mean, the gall of these people to like double down on all of this when you see it just resulting in disaster after disaster in all of these other countries. And then they're just like, oh, yeah, we just got to do it more. We just got to throw more money behind it, make it bigger and more global. It's just like, I don't know if I should trust you guys. Like, what do you think about this? Well, socialism uh, slash communism, of course, has failed everywhere it's been tried. Um, but the appeal of socialism slash communism um, is pretty pretty high. The appeal is pretty high if you are among the, the ruling class. Um, in almost every time, every, well, everywhere in the 20th century where communism um, became the, 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 the organization of, of a country, um, people who had gotten to the top um, before it was communist got to uh, be, the, be the people in charge. Um, but the, the fatal flaw of socialism is the faith in experts that they have all the answers, that they can figure everything out, that they know the best way to, to grow food in Sri Lanka and have enough to feed everybody, that you can't allow people to figure that out on their own. Even if you think about the founding of the United States, the pilgrims, the first uh, the first colonists who came over here, when they tried socialism, they almost all starved to death. When they instituted liberty and personal property and having personal responsibility to survive, they thrived. The, that dynamic has not changed in 500 years. It's the same. You cannot have, it is impossible for even the smartest, most good-hearted expert to uh, competently direct anything that is necessary for the sustain sustainability of life or for economic prosperity. It's just not possible. Um, you know, it's too bad we don't have, it seems like the kind of free market econom um, economists like Milton Friedman, who used to be on the Phil Donahue show every couple of years to explain to people how um, economics works. But what he was really explaining is how humans work and that you cannot have uh, rule by expert. And, and that's why um, you see these failures everywhere. But this is why the Davos set is, is so determined to do this. Um, it's either arrogance or it's evil. And I think it might even be evil arrogance that they want to be the ones in charge. They will never be the ones eating the bugs. They will never be the ones not allowed to travel, but they will be the ones telling everybody else how to live their lives. And it's, gonna, it's going to cause economic and humanitarian misery. If it is not, uh, if we don't put a stop to it. Yeah, Chris, I. I... <laughs> my notes this section, 21st century collectivist agriculture. And that, that was stuck in my head because of the project that uh, that we're working on over at the Socialism Research Center, the Socialism at a Glance book, which goes through the history of all these different countries. And one of the things, one after the other, one, one uh, uh, you know, uh, um, case study after another of all of these countries is is the idea of them trying to collectivize their farming and if all the farming is just underneath the controls of the powers that be they'll be able to do it better and it always just fails one time after another and now it's just like this just seems like a different flavor of that just with a 21st century spin but is it the same sort of like basic logic that underpins the whole thing or am i just uh you know grouping them together uh I 
Well, I actually have a different take on this. And I'm going to go back to what Linnea said earlier in the podcast about the degrowth movement. And I think that a lot of these people like Klaus Schwab think that the human population is expanding at an exponential rate that is going to be unable to sustain itself given the amount of resources we have. Okay. But here's why I think he's wrong about that. Because over time, due to technology, innovation, and you know higher productivity, we've been able to make more with less. And I think that they are just stuck in this zero-sum game mentality that there's only so much, you know, uh, in terms of things, you know, whether it's um, energy or whether it's food or whether it's water or like anything that that can be distributed. And therefore, we have to quell the population and we have to kind of restrict the total amount that is being allowed to be distributed. I take a completely different point of view, and I think that this does involve you know capitalism because capitalism is so great because it it fuels innovation and it fuels you know new technologies that can um solve you know these these uh, scarcities and that's why in a in a capitalist in a really free market society you don't have shortages and scarcities but in in you know very top-down collectivized uh you know countries like you know many of the communist countries that we describe in in the book you have you. It's full of scarcity and shortages. Right. So I think that that's something that just needs to be, uh, you know, that, that that just needs to be dispelled. That there's this zero sum game, and that there's only so much that can be produced per year. Because in in twenty, thirty, fifty years from now, there could be technology that could make you know the agricultural yields much higher on a you know per acre basis. I mean, I can't even fathom that. I can't because, I mean, think about 200 years ago, farming techniques versus today. They've mm-hmm. gotten much better. They're much more productive, you know, on a per, uh, you know, acre basis. So I think that applies to everything. And that's well, why I think that's why I think that, you know, and especially when it comes to energy, water and food, those are the three basic necessities of life. And if they're going to try to restrict or try to distribute those three things or, you know, or, um, you know, not a lot of people to, you know, have what they need in terms of those three things that I think plays into the degrowth, you know, slash like, you know, anti-human. I know that this, that's, a, you know, a, a, almost a disparaging way of, you know, uh, describing it. But I, I think that they've convinced themselves of that and that they are the keep, that they are the saviors of the world because they think that there, you know, there's not enough to sustain humanity for, you know, the future. I I want to disagree with that. I want to see in the chat, uh, everyone that is uh, tuning in here, what do you think it is? Do you think that these plans, especially when it relates to agriculture and trying to basically, uh, you know, do it their way, that's more sustainable and all of that. Do you think that that is just a result of hubris? Or do you think that it has something to do with a degrowth movement? Is it them just thinking that they could do it better and then they fail? Or is the failure part of the plan? I'm uh, very curious of what you think. So put that well, in the chat. It can also be a combination of both. Two things can be too, true at the same time. Fair you know? enough. Fair enough. Don't, don't, mm-hmm. uh, don't destroy I'm just, my binary I'm, here. I'm just, I'm just saying, yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's, not, it's not binary. All right. What, yeah. what's, the 50, what's the 50% and over that you think that it's attributed to? Uh, darn you... Catherine, how dare you side with the heart of the podcast over there? Uh, lady and gentlemen, any final words? Anything you want to get off your chest before we sign off for the week? Yeah, I hope everybody has a great Labor Day weekend. Fantastic. All right, seeing a lot of degrowth coming in, a couple of uh, bolts I saw here. So, all right, well, uh, while those still roll in, I do want to uh, do my outro here. So, I want to thank everyone for tuning in to every 
uh, to this week of the In the Tank podcast. Join us every week for a new episode. If you're an audio-only listener, leave a review for us on iTunes. It'd be greatly appreciated. Um, and also, if you are an audio-only listener, you can catch our show a day earlier on Thursdays at noon Central Time, where we are live streaming on Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and Rumble. And you can join the conversation, throw your comments and questions in the chat. Maybe we'll show your comments on the screen. Maybe we'll address your questions on the fly. Also, if you are watching, hitting that like button, sharing this content, subscribing if you haven't already, or just leaving a comment under the video are all things that will cost you nothing but a couple of seconds, but helps break through those big tech algorithms that prevent content like this from being shown to more people. If you would like, you can follow us on Twitter at In the Tank Pod. You can send us your comments and suggestions to the show by emailing us at In the Tank Podcast at gmail.com. Jim Lakely, where can the fun people find you? At Jay Lakely on Twitter, at Heartland Inst on Twitter, and always visit heartland.org. Fantastic. Linnea Lucan, same question. Hey, I was muted. Um, well, you can find a lot of my work at climaterealism.com, and I'm at Twitter at Linnea Lucan. Um, also, check out Heartland Daily News, where we have a lot of a little bit more detailed articles. Uh, and then look at a new website, which is still kind of getting work done on it, uh, energyataglance.com. Also, you can find her pretty much every week on Fridays on the right. Heartland Institute YouTube channel where she is on Climate Change Roundtable. And Chris Talgo, what do you have to teach today? Uh, StoppingSocialism.com. Jack is putting up some of our case studies. So if you want to go and uh, get a sneak peek at you know, some of the stuff that's going to be in the book, uh, go ahead there. And also Heartland.org uh, because our opinion page is being filled with all of the great op-eds that our writers write and i am trying to do my best to post them on the site so that all the listeners and viewers can get a one-stop shop to you know look at all the great uh, harlan content that's being produced fantastic all right thank you all for tuning in we'll talk to you next week How dare you!